Thank you, Brother Eric. I remember when we were in the midst of switching buildings, and as we were carrying stuff back and forth, I asked Brother Eric, hey, so are you ready to preach tomorrow? He said, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought of playing that joke, and right now, Brother, it's you, you're up. <laughs> but I know he has uh, had a history of heart issues, so I didn't want to give Brother Eric a heart attack. So with that, uh, good morning everyone. Thank you for joining us and to those joining us live or later as the service gets recorded, thanks to our brother Johnny uh, and catch it at that time. We are finishing chapter two of the book of Habakkuk today. And that is gonna take us through the fifth woe that uh, the prophet Habakkuk is being given this word by the Lord. And the fifth wall basically comes uh, to the conclusion of the pronouncements of judgment that God is giving to the Chaldeans, to the evil Babylonians. So with that, let us open up our Bible to the second chapter of Habakkuk, starting in verse 18. The Word of, the word of God reads as follows. What prophet is an idol? What its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for indeed your word is true. For indeed your word is a lamp onto our feet. That helps us to keep our eyes on you. And not on idols that we make for ourselves, Lord. This morning may you bring conviction to our minds, to our hearts. And inevitably to our daily lifestyles, Lord, that we would turn from idols, that we would flee idolatry and turn to you in repentance, Lord. May you be with us now as we reflect and expound upon your word. May you give me the words, Lord, to preach from your sacred text. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, I've titled today's sermon, Who's Your Idol? Or, What's Your Idol? And when we talk about an idol, I'm not talking about who's your idol, and you'll say, well, Kelly Clarkson or Carrie Underwood. Right? That word has been used in our culture, and even in, uh, like in Hispanic culture, right? Unido. It means like someone you look up to, someone that is great at something that they do, right? an idol. That's not what the Bible refers to, although it could be, right? You put that in, in the place of God. Today we're going to expound upon what that means and how that is applied to our everyday life. But let's recap real quick. I always like to give a very brief synopsis of how do we get here? How do we get to the text that we're reading today? God is giving five woes, five rebukes, 
five pronouncements of judgment to the Chaldeans. And God, through his prophet, prophet Habakkuk, is pronouncing judgment on them. We'll remember that Habakkuk was grieved for the rampant immorality in Israel. And he asked God to please do something, to please, please bring restoration. And God will. But before God does that, he will bring a more wicked people to take over and pretty much put his people in bondage, plunder their possessions. And he makes it clear that his own people will not go unpunished. And those that he's going to use to punish them later are also not going to be spared from judgment. The five woes are a recognition that God knows what the Chaldeans are up to. He knows their depravity. And therefore, Habakkuk should not be untrusting of what God is doing. Here's a summary of the five woes. First, God condemns the building up of their unrighteous gain. Secondly, God condemns the ways of unrighteous protection. People protecting themselves at the expense of others suffering. Thirdly, God condemns unrighteous violence. War for the sake of war and in order to take possessions and basically bully other nations. Fourthly, God condemns shameless sexual immorality. And fifthly, which we come to today, God condemns idolatry. The underlying common factor of the godless nation of the Babylonians is that they are idolaters. They have put something else in the place of God. Some weeks ago, we went out to eat in the afternoon after spending the Lord's Day with with some of the families here. And as we were waiting at the restaurant, <clears throat> my son became intrigued by these little idols that the owners of the restaurant put out. And they put burning incense and food, literally, to these idols, offerings, right? And he asked me whether those were toys or, or what was going on. And I explained to him, you know, these are what we call idols. Like these people don't know who Jesus is. Therefore, they worship other things other than Jesus. And I could see his little mind. He couldn't comprehend how that could be. A reminder that we should always instruct and teach our children of who the true God is so that when these other ideas that are non-biblical are introduced to them, they will be repelled by them. And they would know what the truth is. But in any case, so my son, uh, quickly, he got self-righteous, and he said, I will go and destroy them now. <laughs> so then we need to respect people, we need to love people, we need to tell them about Jesus so that they can come to a saving knowledge of, of knowing Christ. So he came, he calmed down a little bit, and then when, uh, when his friend Tyler got there, I saw him over there explaining to Tyler what those little things were. So now he's teaching about him, right? So that's good. So those type of idols are easily identified. Statues, images, pictures that people venerate or people worship. 
They are used as objects of worship. Those are visible. It's a pretty easy way to identify idols. But there are also idols that aren't as easily identified. Those would be idols of the heart. The idols of my life and the idols of your life are a bit more sophisticated than those we criticize. These idols, although they exist, perhaps they may not be as visible as those depicted by statues or those images and carved images that people offer incense and food to. In today's text, the Chaldeans are condemned for their idolatry. Some of their literal idols, graven images, were Marduk, that was their main, their patron god. He was a warrior god who was also attributed powers of agriculture and rain. He often was depicted in history as having a pet dragon, Marduk. They also had Nergal, who was a bad god, who brought war and famine when the Chaldeans, according to their own standards, were not being good. Tiamat, a goddess of the sea. Shemash, the god of the sun. And they had a few others. So how did these gods come to be? If we trace them back enough, basically people came up with them either through legend or storytelling, tradition. These were gods made to their own image. But we can see that the Babylonian idolatry goes much beyond just the visible idolatry of those idols. In describing their evil and corrupt practices, going back to chapter 1 of this same book, it says this about the Chaldeans, Habakkuk 1.11, it reads, Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. We see then that the idolatry of all people, whether sophisticated or unsophisticated, is ultimately an idol of the heart. The Chaldeans, what they most enjoyed and liked and lived for was to execute and show their own might, their power. It says that that was their God. That was their ultimate idol. John Calvin, great theologian of history, the Reformation, he was quoted as saying, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb an expert in inventing idols. You know how do we come up with idols? We make them up. We invent them according to the passions of our fallen nature. So then the question becomes, what is the title of the sermon? Who or what is your idol? With this in mind, we'll dig into today's text. As we look at the woe, five of five. This is the last woe. God condemns idolatry. We're going to see three things. First, what is an idol? Right? Make an accurate definition, biblically speaking, of what that means. What is an idol? Then we're going to look at whether your idol delivers. Those things that idols promise that they will give you, are they delivering? 
And then thirdly, we're going to see, do you know the Lord? Do we know who God is in contrast to those idols? So let's get to it. First, what is an idol? Habakkuk 2.18 reads, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. The word for idol here in the original language means literally a divine image. This carved image is then worshipped as a representation of or instead of in lieu of a true divinity. What only should be attributed to the almighty God is being attributed to a literal statue. But practically speaking then, an idol is something or someone to whom we render more honor than we render to God. Idolatry is rendering of higher honor to anything other than God. Now rendering honor is not bad within itself. We are told by scripture to honor our father and our mother. We are told to honor civil authority. We are told to honor leaders, whether that's in the home, a church, at work, etc. But that honor is not to be given in any way that violates the honor that should first and foremost go to God so that we don't violate the very first commandment, which we see in Exodus 20, verse 3. It says, you shall, not, you shall have no other gods before me. Now we could quickly say, I don't believe in other gods. I believe in the only true, righteous, triune God of the Bible. But careful, my brothers and sisters, the moment we put something in the place of God, we have other gods. And that's called an idol. The text here then asks a rhetorical question. What profit is an idol? What benefit will come from something that a human being has made and put that in the place of God? C.S. Lewis once explained that the human heart, by our human nature, we are constantly seeking for what's going to make us happy, for what's going to fulfill us, and we keep looking for that so long as it's not God. We put God aside, I want God, but let me try to look for something else to fulfill me. As we know, as we seek that fulfillment, it's not going to happen. So an idol then takes the place that only belongs to God. This idol, whether an actual image or a person or a goal or an ambition, will take the place of God in our life. So now that we're starting to see a little bit better what an idol is, I ask you, who or what is your idol? Are we like the Chaldeans who own might, our power, riches, possessions? Are those taking the place of God in our life? Here's a clue. What are you most consumed with? What has overcome you? What, what is it that you think about the most? What is it that we daydream about where we say, if only I could turn the blank. If only things were in the blank. As these thoughts overcome our mind and our hearts, we become idolaters. Here are two things as we consider. 
What benefit can come from creating those idols in our life? 2 Peter 2.19, the latter part of it says, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So then idolatry is slavery, not freedom. In evangelizing, many times people who are not Christians, they have often said, like, I don't need freedom. Like, you tell me that Christ will make me free. I'm already free. I do whatever I want. Not realizing that what they actually mean is, I commit and do and engage in whatever sin I want. Whenever I want. And this is what has overcome people. So much so that they're actually enslaved to sin. And they cannot stop sinning. Whatever overcomes a man. To that we are enslaved. So therefore, that is not freedom, but slavery. They must and cannot stop being slaves to their sinful lifestyle. Furthermore, Ecclesiastes 1.8 says, All things are full of weariness, and men cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor their ear filled with hearing. So just as we saw in uh, 2 Peter 2.19, we saw that whatever overcomes us, we're enslaved to. And now here in Ecclesiastes, it tells us that idolatry does not satisfy. No so matter how much we see, how much we hear, how much we seek, even if we find it, it will not satisfy. It must go on perpetually. It'll be one more sexual adventure, one more drug, one more dollar, one more possession, one more accomplishment. If the pursuit of these things are grabbing our honor so that we give that honor above the honor we give God, we are idolaters. So who or what is your idol? Secondly, does that idol deliver? Looking at the next verse, Habakkuk 2.19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. So the Babylonians, as they went in and plundered nations as they were going to do with Israel, they're very likely credited their warrior god, Marduk, with their success in these wars. So according to them, their idol delivered. If you would ask the Babylonians, does your god actually work for you and delivers what you are seeking from him? They would probably say, yes, he does. We are very successful. So in their eyes, they were successful. Their idol delivered. Not knowing that it's only until God says, this is your time. So does my idol deliver? Does your idol deliver? Whatever it is that drives you to fulfill self, that which takes you away from the things of God, does it deliver what it promises? The answer is, surprisingly, yes. Though temporarily, just for that split second. The delight of another accomplishment. The carnal satisfaction 
of another adventure, whether sexual or otherwise. The satisfaction of getting your way, the temporary praise of others, until it no longer satisfies and leaves you empty. Idols then of the heart that we have built in our minds, although they're not literally overlaid with gold and silver, but my friends, that simply means that we're chasing after what seems appealing, shiny, glittery. That's going to satisfy me. Attractive to our desires and senses. We have shaped that idol and we sacrifice to its altar. You say, wait a minute. How can I sacrifice to an altar of such idol? Well, we know from scriptures that we are worshipers by nature. That applies to both believers and non-believers. As we were made to worship, we worship. And our worship has finite resources. We are not infinite beings. By that I mean we have limited time, we have limited money, we have limited talents. Whom do we serve most? with these worship resources that we are given by God. Matthew 6, 24 reads as follows. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We either are serving God then with our resources, or we are serving, we are serving something else. Who or what is your idol? Now, as we press that question, maybe some of us are saying, oh, I need to stop asking that. I don't have statues. I don't have pictures. I don't bow down to them. And if you do, repent. Right? Let's not leave that out. But anyways, we may be, we may be prompted to say, I, I don't have that. That's not a question I should ask myself. Well, I asked myself that question this week. And as I studied, and as I listened to similar sermons to godly preachers that I respect highly, I was convicted, greatly convicted. And God revealed to me an idol that I've made for myself this week. I'm going to tell you what it is. Yeah, tell me. <laughs> right. Here it is. I have this overwhelming urgency to be able to retire relatively early from my corporate job. Now, is that bad? Is it bad to have this strong goal and desire of mine? We know from Scripture that desires in themselves are not bad. We are not Buddhists who ultimately desire to enter the state of nirvana, a certain type of glorified state, and the way to enter that state is by having no desires at all, to rid yourself from all desires. Now, there's side note. There's a blatant contradiction to have no desires except the overwhelming desire to have no desires and that's a lifelong pursuit right 
So in, in its face, it's contradictory. But in any case, we are not Buddhists. We're not like that. We are to desire things. As Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So that brings, brings me back to the confession I just gave. My desire to conclude my corporate job early and go into retirement is not so that I can be idle and sleep in every day until noon. God is my witness that that is not my goal. My goal is actually to do full-time ministry. And that could be seen as a noble Goal, right? But this desire has oftentimes consumed me in doing everything I can in order to boost up my savings, in investing aggressively through various avenues so that I can make up for the time needed to have income before the years where my official retirement income would kick in. This week, God, God has revealed to me in no, uncertain, in no uncertain terms. The question, is that desire to retire early what you are serving? Or are you serving me? I'll be honest, I didn't want to admit that. I try to look for ways to justify you know, my, my priorities and what I'm doing. Until God, over and over in my study, revealed that to me clearly. So then even godly desires that we justify can become an idol. When they take the place and take from our full devotion to God. That is my heart, my heart idol that has consumed me. Again, it's with what I think is an honorable end, right? It's not because I want to live an extravagant lifestyle. So then, my brothers and sisters, what is your idol? And does it deliver? For some men, it could be the desire of success, desire for money, desire for respect, or perhaps it's a constant pursuit of knowing more and more theology while neglecting our homes. For some of our sisters, maybe it's the desire to make it seem like your home is all well put together. That you're raising great children, you have a great marriage. Some of you perhaps is being on a diet so your husbands and others would admire your physique. Or perhaps it's your desire to take the spot as head of the household. Getting personal now, right? <coughs> and for everyone, perhaps it's the constant scrolling of our phones. I need to see the latest updates. What is my friend up to? Did enough people like my post? Did I pass the next level of the game? And that's to a point where it has consumed our livelihood. That's what we most think about. 
And for some of you, it could be, I need to have that next model of that phone. Or I need to have a phone, period. And that desire has consumed us. Common denominator of all that, they are idols of the hearts. We are not going to a graven image or to a picture and bowing down. But to those desires, we are. The pursuit of desires that have little to no restraint in order to seek self-fulfillment. Now this can be blatant, let's say sin, sexual passions, or it can be more subtle. Becoming consumed with whatever it is, fill in the blank, in order to serve God there. I can mask it up and it looks good. That way I can pursue my idolatry. So the only things those idols of the heart will deliver, my friends, is two things. Distancing ourselves from God and disappointment. Even if we reach those goals. Even if we get what we're looking for. I've thought of one example in our marriages for those of us that are married. Even if we reach the desires of our hearts within our marriages, for husbands would be what? A wife that respects us and submits to our godly leadership. And it's a Proverbs, 20, a Proverbs 31 woman. I aspire that for my marriage. I don't even have that. For the wives, maybe a husband that loves you like Christ loves the church and lays down his life for you. And that's something we should aim for. By God's grace, we should. We should be working our way through that. By the grace of God. But, do you know that if you if you had that, brothers, if you had a perfect Proverbs 31 woman, and sisters, those of you that are married, if you have, or even if you're not married, if you're seeking that godly husband, even if you had that, do you know that you still would not be satisfied? Do you know that? For those single people, do you know that even if you were granted that spouse that you're so long for, do you know that you still would not be satisfied? Here's why. God Almighty has given His only begotten Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, to die the death that you and I deserve. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, so that by trusting in Him and Him alone, by faith, you would be forgiven and experience the fullness of joy and forgiveness in Christ. Although that has happened already, and we have a proclamation of being Christians, you are still not satisfied. See that? We're still looking for those other things to satisfy us. Because we don't think of ourselves as truly complete in Christ. So therefore, no amount of accomplishment or, or a worldly thing that we can get in this earth, even whether it is a godly wife or husband or future spouse, we would still not be satisfied. Jeremiah 2.13 reads as follows. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed up cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
Basically, we're looking for life where there is no life. We're looking to quench thirst, not with the living water that comes from Jesus, spiritual water, but rather with salt water, with sinful desires and passions. We are stubborn in the search for that polluted water that's going to satisfy us. It is here where we must realize that our idols, as sophisticated or as subtle as they may be, they cannot and will not satisfy. So where does that leave us in? And scripture has a lot to say, right, about idolatry. Many verses that I actually had to not include in here. And they are applicable, right? A lot of them are basically verses indicating how God looks at idols, how God even mocks those that trust in idols, because those idols cannot deliver. So then what? We must ask ourselves, do I know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? The next verse speaks about that. Habakkuk 120, I mean 2.20. It says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So here we have a contrast. We have a contrast of God Almighty in comparison to the idols that were just described. God stands in a unique place because he is holy. And he and he alone is in that holy temple. So with that contrast, we are reminded that God is holy while idols are corrupt. God is creator while idols are created. God gives the breath of life, whereas idols are lifeless. God alone satisfies and frees people from sin while, while idols enslave people to sin. God alone is worthy of worship, honor, and glory, while idols are worthy of destruction. We are reminded of that by Isaiah 42, verse 8. It reads, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. That verse there, also in Habakkuk 2.20, it also says, To let all the earth keep silence before him. This is a call to acknowledge the greatness and the glory that God alone possesses. As Isaiah 42, 8, we just read, it says that he does not give his glory. No, God doesn't share his glory. When we talk about glory, we've talked about it in the past. The literal word there means weight, the weightiness of God. That is something that even in our humanity we can perceive at times. Perhaps at one point or another, all of us have been in a position where we are in the presence of someone who is very important. And you can sense the kavod, the weight, the glory of that person, humanly speaking. As I mentioned before, I've seen this in some of the meetings that I've had with very high-level executives of companies and airlines. 
where there's a bunch of chit-chatting going on before the meeting. When this person comes into the meeting, everyone takes their place and everybody shuts up. That's because we know. We know who that person is. That person holds a place of honor in the business. How much more? Do we know the place and honor that God is worthy of? Do we keep silence before him? And it is here that I see an application in our own church of showing God that ultimate honor, reverence, distinction, that glory. As a church, I believe that we can improve at this. To show each other the importance of reverence when it comes to the call to worship. Literally, when we are about to start our service. And quiet our minds and our hearts a few minutes before that to reflect on the fact that we are coming before Almighty God as His people, as His congregation. Our God is not an idol. Our God is not a corrupted image. Our God is the almighty creator of all. And it is not a time for us to be distracted, but to literally become calm, silent, reverential. We should make this a habit, my brothers and sisters. For our own sake, our own hearts, our own minds, and also to teach our children that we're not playing games. We are coming before the Almighty as we get together in corporate worship. And also to show any visitors that we are not playing around. That we serve an Almighty God worthy of honor, respect, reverence, and worship. As we come before the presence of a holy God. So then, what can we take away of this condemnation to the idolaters? Well, first, as I, as I ask, who or what is your idol? Did I offend your idol, maybe? The call for us is to flee. Flee from it. Flee idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says just that. It says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That means run from it. Don't negotiate with it. Don't justify it. Don't patch it up so that it looks godly. No, it says flee from it. Run from it. Then in 1 John 5, 21, it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is very interesting because previous times that I've read the book of 1 John, this is the last verse of the book. 5.21, and it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And as you start looking at that book, you're like, why would John close with that phrase? Come to realize, the book of 1 John has a primary theme of bringing assurance to the believers. It includes statements such as, My little children, I write, this, I write these things to you so that you may know 
that you have eternal life. It also reads, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So then we come to realize that the reason why that verse is there, perhaps among other reasons, but for sure, is because as we become inundated with idols, we break our fellowship with God and it brings doubts to our assurance. In the book of 1 John, as it's intended to bring assurance to us, it warns us if we don't guard ourselves from idols, it will tear down the assurance that we have of our fellowship with God. Secondly, we can conclude that God honors His Word. In His five woes, in His last woe to the Chaldeans, condemning idolaters. God honors His Word. This should bring fear to us. Here's why. The whole reason why God is coming and judging Israel, using the Chaldeans, it's because of a root sin that Israel had. You know what it is? Idolatry. When they should have well knew, they were well warned not to be idolaters. Then we see that the Babylonians themselves, what is a root sin? It says that their own might was their God. Not to mention all those engraven images that they also are condemned for. They were idolaters at heart and at practice. God honors his word and he said he would bring judgment to them. Did he? Yes. So then will God not judge our idolatry? God was true to his word in that when he promised to judge idolatry, he came through. My friends, do you think you're going to get away with your idolatry? Am I going to get away with mine? First, for the non-Christian, will God overlook your rejection of the gospel over and over while you carry on with your life, ignoring the commandments of God and living under your own rules? What's the reason why you reject Christ? Either passively or aggressively. Passively could be, yeah, you know, I, I attend church and I check all the boxes. Or aggressively, no, that's not for me. I pass. Would re your rejection of the gospel be because perhaps you have idols that you don't want to give up? You love the idols that you have created in your heart because they provide you with the sins that you love. Oh, how miserable you are, my friend, if that's you. You've exchanged the creator for the creation and the pleasures thereof. On your way to eternal condemnation, repent. And for the Christian, will God ignore your idols? 
Remember that God does not share his glory. He will expose your idols and burn them. So repent. As we just read the last verse of 1 John, it's written to Christians, a little children. John, the apostle, with that love, saying, My little children, keep yourself from idols. Thy will wreck your assurance in the Lord. God honors his word. It should bring us fear. But also, my brothers and sisters, it brings comfort because we know that in his word, God tells us how he saves and redeems idolaters. Jesus, Jesus died for those who betrayed him. As idolaters, we have hope to run to Christ as we leave our idols behind. Jesus will forgive us. He cleanses us. He gives us new hearts, new desires, and the assurance that we will be declared righteous before God when we meet Him. That is a process. That is a process that we are working through as we experience sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, not more and more like the idols that we're chasing after. So then, I go back to my first question, my friends. Who or what is your idol? I reveal to you one of mine. It's a big one. What's yours? May our idols be exposed, rejected, and burned so that we may not exchange our Creator for the creation and its pleasures. Which will only brings us to a never-ending cycle that will never satisfy you and only bring you broken fellowship with God and bring you despair. May we not go that route, but rather seek that which is above. Seek first the kingdom of God. We want to do the other thing, the opposite. We want to seek all those other things, and then we think that God and his kingdom will come. No. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all those godly desires, whether he's merciful to me or not, of granting me a retirement to serve him, who knows? Maybe he won't grant me that. But first I need to seek his righteousness. His kingdom first. Be faithful to that. And my other godly desires, if they happen to be godly, then God will come through but not before I turn away from my idols. May that be the case with us as God has mercy in us and we're still here. May that bring conviction to our lives and repentance. I mean today, my brothers and sisters, not let me think about it and maybe, no, today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for it. It is a mirror that makes us see clearly who we are and also give us insight into who you are. A beautiful Savior who forgives, who draws us to you. How we thank you for that, Lord. May we give you our reverence, our worship, our adoration for you and you alone are worthy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.